According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the great Christmas prophet, who, uh, I'm teasing, there may not be a lot Christmassy in chapters uh, 35, 36, and 37, but we'll see. Sometimes uh, Scripture surprises me. Jeremiah 35 this morning, and we got a class, and we're going to center on the Rechabites and uh, the blessings that come here as uh, we go through it. 19 verses to cover between now and the communion service, and really um, a remarkable testimony, and not very well known. In fact, outside of this chapter, uh, you don't have a clue who the Rechabites even are. All right, and so uh, we'll see the background on it in Second Kings, and we'll see the uh, forefather of this clan and why clans are important. And uh, as we have time, we'll talk about tribes and clans and families and uh, the applications there. Uh, the word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So we've come back in time. Actually, this chapter is out of order. Much of the book is out of order. Uh, but we're backing up quite a bit. In the last couple of weeks, we've been right there under siege, ready for Jerusalem to be destroyed. And uh, in the process then, in the text of this book, we get a two-chapter break from chapter 35 and chapter 36, whereby uh, we have flashbacks and we have previous events that, uh, that are being recorded uh, for the purpose of teaching the doctrine contained in those events. All right? And so uh, we want to be clear as we work our way through. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of his eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, this is our grace provision, and we thank you for all of your grace provision. The blessings that we have to assemble together, the blessings that we have to uh, to have you open the eyes of our understanding. Thank you, Father, for the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. I thank you that this truth today does not depend on how smart we are to figure these things out. It depends on how faithful you are to open our eyes and to teach us what we need to know. So, Father, open our eyes this morning. Shine forth in your faithfulness. Make clear to us the things that are, that are presented here for our application. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to destroy some traditions this morning, or not, okay? We're going to try to and see if it works. The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Well, that seems easy enough. Of all the things Jeremiah was ever asked to do, this is one of the simpler ones. <laughs> this seems pretty easy. And uh, so he does. He says, I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, different Jeremiah, son of Habazaniah, and his brothers, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. Don't know how many people we're talking about, but the entire house was brought to the temple. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, which was above the chamber of Messiah and uh, the son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. All right. And all of that may mean absolutely nothing whatsoever to us, but 
it's good geography for the temple, and it's good to spot where these rooms are and to understand how it was laid out at that time, obviously, before it was destroyed. All right, this is Solomon's temple still, before, before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. it had a different layout when, when Herod rebuilt the, uh, the thing. And so he brings them all in. And in verse 5, I set before the men of the house of the Rechabites pitchers full of wine, really bowls full of wine, and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. You think, wow, this is a great party. This is going to be fun. This is, this, is, this is cool. Yahweh himself is demanding this. But they said, we will not. See, now here's the problem. They said, we will not drink wine for Yonadab, or Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, you shall not drink wine, you or your sons, forever. So who does he think he is? What business does he have? Uh, You know, he's just given a command, thou shalt not. What gives him that kind of right? See, and this is what we have to spend some time with, because he has every right within his tribe, within his clan, within his family. As he's laying down expectations, he's laying down parameters for those that descend from uh, in his inheritance. And so this is uh, not being rebuked. This is not the Lord destroying family traditions. This is the Lord exalting family traditions and using family traditions to make his own point as well and to bless them for this. So uh, here's why we're not going to drink, because... Jonadab said not to. And by the way, that was 240 years in the past. That was six, I'm guessing, six generations prior to this Jazaniah fellow that, that is actually speaking these words. All right. You shall not drink wine. You are your sons forever. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed. You shall not plant a vineyard or own one. But in tents you shall dwell all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. And so these were the commands given by Jonadab to his clan, to his descendants. And the explanation continues, We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us not to drink wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in. We do not have vineyard or field or seed. We have only dwelt in tents and have obeyed and have not done according, or have done, I'm sorry, we have done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. Then a final note of explanation. Well, why are you in the city then? What are you doing here? Uh, But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, come, Let us go to Jerusalem before the army of the Chaldeans and before the army of the Arameans, so we have dwelt in Jerusalem. All right, so there's the first half, basically, the first half of the chapter, the first 11 verses here, and we're centering on family traditions, all right, which is a good thing to center on because we all have them, right? There's Bolander family traditions that are different from your family traditions, and and I hope anyway, and and, because ours are kind of strange. And there's other family traditions that probably seem strange to people that are outside the family. So what are these about? Well, they're going to get tested. And the Lord assigns Jeremiah this task. Jeremiah is tasked with testing the Rechabites' clan traditions. And the Lord himself is saying, go on in there, tempt them. Go on in there, ask them to drink. Put wine before them and see if they drink. 
All right. Now, this is not a temptation for their downfall. This is not a temptation because God himself does not tempt anybody. God himself is not bringing about their downfall. It's like with permitting the temptation of Job. He knows what the outcome is going to be. He knows that they're going to stay faithful to their family traditions. And the reason why he wants this to be center stage for Jeremiah to observe it, for it to be public here in the temple, for all the Levites to see it, for all the priests to see it, so that he can then use it as an illustration. And that's what verses 12 and following are about. Verses 12 through 19 use the Rechabites' faithfulness to highlight the Jewish unfaithfulness uh, in, in their day and age. And so uh, testing the Rechabites' clan traditions. By the way, I, I don't like the spelling on Rechabites. That's my, my, my uh, peeve, my personal pet peeve. If, are there any NIVs in the room? Maybe not. I mock the NIV a lot, and so probably my flock is too embarrassed to bring the NIV into the, into the property here. But one positive thing I'll say about the NIV is they know how to spell Rechabites. And uh, it's the only English translation, well, one of two, that I found that use a K instead of a CH, all right? And so R-E-K-A-B-I-T-E, Rechabite with a K, is the best spelling on Rechabites. And so I want to I offer praise to the NIV translators for having the, uh, the proper spelling on Rechabites. Anyway, that's who we'll deal with. I'll keep it as a CH on the slide because that's what it is in my New American Standard Bible. All right. Sequentially, if you're a type that likes to do things sequentially, then you're not going to like the chapter because it's out of order. Uh, Chapter 35 is one of Jeremiah's earliest messages. The dating on this, I think we can pinpoint uh, with a fair degree of certainty uh, at around 599, okay? Maybe 600, maybe 601, maybe 598, but most likely 599, plus or minus, you know, two, two or three. And uh, the infographic on this that comes in the Logos software I recommend is, uh, oh, don't do that. Yes. All right. Yeah, you're going to read that? (laughs) Better? All right. Um, So we back up to 600 or 599. There we go. 599 B.C. Jeremiah contrasts Judah with the Rechabites. And so um, I think it's useful. I think it's um, a good setting for this. It's got to be during the reign of this king, so we can pinpoint that. But then also the other circumstances around, the other messages around, and the rebellion in particular of Jehoiakim against Babylon in 601. Um, of course, Daniel and, and those guys were carried away in 605. Anyway, this is a good, a good point. And it's much earlier than most of what we've been looking at down here in 585, 586, where the temple itself is destroyed, all right? So it's out of order and it comes much earlier. And then if we're going to go back to find the origin of the Rechabites, we have to go to a different chart than this one, <laughs> all right? We have to go to a different timeline, one that covers the kings and the prophets in Second Kings. And uh, I may have a link for that as well. I don't recall. Anyway, it's one of the earliest messages here in the book. And if we're fine with that, then we can proceed. Okay? We're fine with the fact that Jeremiah put his book in, in place out of order. He ordered the chapters where he wanted them, and they are thematic. The themes of those chapters are important in the development of the book as he compiled them together. And we should be fine with that. 
Now, the tribe, clan, and house social family structure of Israel is important. It's important in many uh, Old Testament books. It's important, I think, throughout the Old Testament. In particular, though, this chapter serves to spotlight some of the, the peculiar aspects of tribes and clans and families or houses, if you will. And I try to, I try to keep the, my terminology consistent so that we don't lose it uh, in the process. The, the problem is all of these are, are variously rendered as family in, in one English translation or another. And sometimes the Hebrew word for tribe gets rendered as family, or the Hebrew word for clan gets rendered for family, or the Hebrew word for house gets rendered for family. And then sometimes a family is just a family. <laughs> Mom and dad and some kids. All right. Uh, so depending on the, the Hebrew word that's used and depending on the context, we want to we know what we're dealing with in, uh, in all these things, especially since it is so alien to us in the 21st century. All right. It is absolutely alien to us. We are not a tribal culture. We are not clannish, oh, some of us maybe. We are not, but we don't have a clan elder that has to sign off on our arranged marriages. I did not get clan permission to relocate from Washington to Texas. See, being born in the great paradise of Washington State and then sojourning in the wilderness that is Texas. Okay? <laughs> and then to marry a girl from Texas, the prettiest girl from Texas. I didn't have to get my clan approval or her clan approval, see. So a lot of this is alien to us in the understanding of tribes. Israel was a nation, all right? They are a people, the lamb or the people of the Jews, the Jewish people. That's the, uh, that's the, the people, and if they have a nation, then they are a people and a nation. See, a lot of people's groups don't have nations. But Israel was a people group and a nation comprised of 12 tribes, and every one of those tribes was still a part of the people of Israel, but they were a part of a tribe. The priestly tribe of Levi or the ruling tribe of Judah or any of the other tribes. They don't have the, the, the labels like Levi and Judah have. Okay, The tribe of Issachar, which was known for whatever. Um, every one of these tribes was known for something. And then within those tribes were the clans, all right? The clans, like Levi was broken down into Kohath and Merari and, and, and the, the sons. The sons of Levi formed the three dominant clans of, the, of, of Levi. And then each of those uh, sons had sons that, had, that became clans as far as it goes. Now, this chapter is important. I think Joshua 7 is significant for this and is useful in this regard. So let me grab Joshua chapter 7. It's a, it's a Bible study, a story I think we're familiar with. Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Here's Joshua chapter 7. Because um, Achan committed a sin, and everybody's suffering for Achan's sin. They had a victory in, in, in Jericho, but uh, Achan stole some of the plunder he was told not to take. They were all told not to take. And so in the investigation process of this, uh, Joshua puts on his Sherlock Holmes hat, and he starts to investigate. And it's, it's helpful when you have the Lord that's guiding your drawing of lots so Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And so drawing lots for the 12 tribes and the straw that gets pulled out is the, the, the straw for Judah. And then he brought the, and here's the, the clans, bad translation, uh, of Judah near, and he took the clan of the Zerahites. And so there's a clan, and you see it's rendered family there in the New American Standard. That's, that's problematic. 
This is a clan, the descendants of, of, uh, of this guy. And then he brings the family or house or the clan of the Zerahites together, man by man, and Zabdee was taken. So there's a house. Of all the households in the, in the Zerahite clan, uh, Zabdee is the house that's mentioned. All right, you following all this? Zabdi, by the way, is, is uh, Achan's grandfather. So we still haven't even reached Achan yet at this point. We've, we've simply identified the, the tribe, the clan, and the house. Now within the house of Zabdi, he brought his household near man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. And so Zabdi is the son of Zerah, that's the clan leader's name, and uh, that the clan was named for. And then, of course, the Zerahites are from uh, the tribe of Judah. All right. Clear? Make sense? <laughs> All right. We don't live under such things today. We don't have those extended clans today. We may, certain families are certainly better knit, better connected, and, and, and have more frequent family reunions. They, they know who their cousins are. They know who their extended second cousins and third cousins and so forth. But you still don't have to go to a great-grandfather to get permission for who you marry, the house you buy, the occupation you pursue, or other things that affect your clan. All right? The house and the clan are, are of significant importance. And so... In the Anchor Bible Dictionary, we have an article here on family. If I can get it to come up. Hello. You work for me. Or you don't. Fine. Uh, This is the Anchor uh, Bible Dictionary. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because it's Communion Sunday and we're in a hurry. Um, But... Focusing on the nature of the family. Did you catch that? Focus on the family. Here's um, terminology. Israelite nomenclature is the clearest window into Israelite kinship structure. And the search for the guilty person responsible for Israel's defeated AI narrows down from tribe to clan to uh, household to family or household, finally to the individual Achan. And so we've got Shavet for the tribe, we've got Mishpacha for the clan, and we've got Beth-Av, literally house of the father. The Beth of house of the father. And finally, to the individual Achan. These three major social units are then repeated in reverse order when his full name is given. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi. Okay, notice that they're patronymics. Lineage is always patrilineal. Our message today is very patriarchal, so that'll get us in trouble with the feminists and other leftist liberals that don't like the patriarchy. Okay, but this is what we're dealing with as we deal with clan, tribes, clans, and families. So Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. The same three levels of kinship are to be found in many other texts where names are used or selected, i.e. the selection of Saul in 1 Samuel 10, the self-deprecating formulas of Saul in 1 Samuel 9. He pointed out he was from a very obscure clan. He was from a very obscure uh, household within uh, the clan, and, and Benjamin was a small tribe. And so we see it there. Also Gideon in uh, Judges 6.15, uses that uh, tribe, clan, house formula. Anyway, then the article that follows then breaks down each one of those. I'll let that go. If you don't have this as a resource, let me know. And if you want a copy, uh, let me know. I, I can PDF it and 
send that to you, okay? But it's useful to study and it's useful to recognize this is the nature of things in the Old Testament. This is the nature as God stipulated for their land grant and for the passing on of the inheritance to the next generation. And daughters that were expected to marry within the clan or within the tribe, certainly. All right, and then other expectations. What if they marry outside the clan? All right, that's a problem, especially if they don't have brothers to carry on the father's name within the clan. And so if they're sisters that have no brother, they're going to inherit their father's property. They can't marry outside the clan. They've got to stay inside the mishpacha in, uh, in that. All right. There's other aspects there, but I think we can let that go. As long as we got the point on this, all right, that we got to start thinking tribally because now we're going to highlight a particular clan within the tribe. This comes up also, by the way, in the prophecy of the birth of Christ, you might recall Beth, uh, in, in the book of Micah, the, the prophetic word to Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too small to be counted among the clans of Judah. The, the Ephrathah clan was so small, it wasn't even registered as a clan within the overall tribe. And yet that's the clan that, uh, that God selected because the Ephraimite, or the Ephrathite, I'm sorry, the, the clan chieftain was Jesse, the father of David. All right, and so uh, selecting Jesse, the Ephrathite, and going to that clan in the uh, the prophecies there is it's uh, it's a neat thing to to study. All right, so Jeremiah obeys the Lord by giving wine to the Rechabites. So Jeremiah didn't fail; he was told give him wine, and he did. Can't force him to drink it, right? <laughs> he can lead a horse to. Um, you can lead an atheist to evidence, but you can't make him think. Okay, marvelous book title. I bought it just for the title, and, and then and then I read the book, and it was it was also good, but the title was better. You know, you can you can bring Rechabites to a wine fest, and you can serve them the wine, and then you've obeyed the Lord because the Lord said, "Give them wine." He gave them wine, but they are not going to drink of it because of their family traditions, their clan imperatives, their patriarchal parameters, if you will. So uh, Jeremiah obeys the Lord by giving wine to the Rechabites. The Rechabite clan remained faithful to their patriarchal parameters. And what's interesting about this is, you know, it's, it's not a, it's given to them in terms of a thou shalt not is given to them in terms that we would be comfortable with in the, in the Ten Commandments or in the Bible. As if it's the Lord himself giving a command to his people with thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not have any gods before me. You know, Yahweh uses that language with his people when he says thou shalt not. And here's Jonadab, the son of Rechab, who tells his people thou shalt not. And they are subject to that clan um those parameters they are subject to the clan parameters not because uh jonadab is so awesome or in the place of god or has divine sovereign majesty but because as a clan as children in the household and descendants and so forth they want to do what they want to honor their father and their mother they want to they want to obey god and in the honoring of your patriarchal lineage okay it, uh, this is what they were doing. And they were doing this for six generations. They were doing this for 240 years. 
All right, and that you know we get by detective work and putting dates together. Um, if we do go back to Second Kings ten and verse fifteen, we find uh, this this fellow here, Jonadab, the son of Rechab. He's not really a hero. Um, maybe I don't know. He he seems to be working with a, a real villain. And uh, you know, if you're going to get in a chariot with Jehu, that's um, that's not a good thing. What are you doing with him? Okay. Um, but God uses this. God uses him. Let me get to Second Kings chapter ten, and um, the whole house of Omri is being destroyed here. It's a it's a it's a wholesale massacre in the northern kingdom. All right, this is northern kingdom too, by the way, not southern kingdom. Northern kingdom, and you remember Ahab and Jezebel, the wicked kings that they were. Well, God's doing away with them. And Jehu is a is a is a Yehu, um, who uh, and probably Hebrew should be pronouncing it Yehu anyway. But he uh, he's a villain, always a villain, and he does horrible things. And, and when the prophet uh, Elijah anoints him, he's weeping because he knows the kind of bad things that are going to happen. And in this, and he's also a maniac uh, chariot driver, and. Uh, Anyway, Second Kings ten fifteen. Now, when he had departed from there, he met Jonadab the son of Rechab coming to meet him, and he greeted him and said to him, "Is your heart right? As my heart is with your heart." And Jehonadab's answered and said, "There's different spellings on Jonadab or Jehonadab, but it's the same guy." Uh, Jehonadab answered and said, "It is." And so Jehu said, "If it is, give me your hand." And he gave him his hand and took him up to uh, him in the chariot. And he said, uh, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he made him ride in his chariot. By the way, Rechab means rider or charioteer. And uh, to be a son of a charioteer, this may be more of a, of a, of a um, occupational title than anything else of the Rechabites. Uh, but they were clearly nomads and they were clearly uh, not living in houses and riders and whatever else. And here he's riding in, in Jehu's chariot. So he comes to Samaria and killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria. He says, I have a massacre to partake in and I want you to help. And Jonadab says, okay, I'm good with that. Jumps in the chariot and off they go. Uh, Until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. And this is part of the story there. There's other legends related to the Rechabites, but I don't know, we can talk about them when we talk about some later things pertaining to this. They may not have even been Jewish. The idea, they may have been a part of a, of a nomadic group that joined in the, in the wilderness wanderings, that uh, were one of the clans that attached themselves to Israel during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. In other words, they were a branch of the Kenites, or the Kenites, uh, Kenites that, that attached themselves to Moses and to the, to the Jewish people during their wilderness wanderings. Now, what happens in the process here is then it becomes a rebuke. The Lord uses the Rechabites to rebuke Judah. He says, look how faithful this clan is. This clan is faithfully doing the word of their forefather, the word of their ancestor. And as a rebuke to Israel, who is not doing the word of their God. And so this becomes then the rebuke in verses 12 through 17. 
So the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the men of Judah and uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction by listening to my words, declares the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, those words are observed, so they do not drink wine to this day. For they have obeyed their father's command. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not listened to me. And so, so many different things are being contrasted here. You have a human father versus God the Father. You've got one command that was given six generations ago, 240 years ago. You've got a command that was given one time by a guy that's now dead and can't even pay attention if you disobeyed him. Okay, And they're still obeying him. 240 years later, <clears throat> if you think about it, take 240 years off of 2016, and what do you got? You got 1776, okay? We're talking about the founding of our nation. We're talking about, uh, you know, the founding fathers and George Washington, and that's, by the way, that's why I got six generations, just counting my own family tree, back to uh, Heinrich Bolander, who was alive in 1776. So, you know, does does my family, does my household, do we follow the imperatives that Heinrich laid down? Okay. No, we don't even know what they might have been. Okay. I know his name, I know his wife's name, and I know the years of date of birth and death. That's all I know. Pennsylvania. I know where the state they lived in. Um, but we don't have these kind of clan uh, structure and the kind of commands that are given or obligations to live by those commands. But they are valid. They are given in the Scripture. They are expected for children to honor their father and mother in the Lord. And so it's not that drinking's wrong. Every other tribe can drink. Every other clan can drink. All the other people in their tribe can drink, just not that clan. All right? And why not? Not because it's a sin. Yahweh didn't tell them not to drink. But their clan patriarch told them not to drink. Their clan patriarch told them not to build houses. Their clan patriarch said... You're living this nomadic lifestyle. Because the clan patriarch felt it was best, evidently, felt that it was best for their clan's spiritual life. Again, to reread the verse, so that you, verse 7, so that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. That it was his view. It was his uh, conviction that the tribes that were settling down and the clans that were settling down and the clans that were getting fixed in a place were getting seduced by the Canaanites around them, that they were, being, uh, they were becoming drunkards with the vineyards they were planting. And he said, you know what? My clan's not going to have that issue. My clan's not going to be seduced by the, the Canaanites that are living around us because we're going to roam from place to place and we're not going to be near those, um, those people. And he made the decision as seemed best to him for his clan. For his clan. Now, was he right in that? Was he wrong in that? Could a a child come along later and say, well, forget that, I'm done with that. Well, not unless a descendant then branched out and became their own clan. So long as they remain Rechabites, so much as they remain this clan, they are subject to the patriarch. And, uh, you know, any other expression of that today, you know, we, in, in, I guess in the modern world, we say, as long as you're under my roof, you follow my rules. Do we, I mean, is that, 
I mean, that's the closest we get. But in the ancient world, you could be under a different roof. You're still subject to your father and your grandfather as long as he's still alive and he's still the Rechabite. He is still the clan chief. Okay? Even in Roman law, this was a feature of Roman law as well. The Peter Familias, the, uh, the, the, the sovereign of the family, had, uh, as long as he was still alive. See, my father's still, my, my biological father's still alive. I'm not a Peter Familias in the Roman tradition. And everything I own, my wife, my children, my property, my car, everything I own technically belongs to my father in the Roman tradition, the Pater Familias tradition. See, not until he passes will I then in my generation become the Pater Familia. Anyway, so here's the rebuke. And they were faithful to their tradition. See, and this is the thing, right or wrong, good decision, bad decision, stupid decision, whatever the case may be. Sarah was blessed when she submitted to Abraham. Now, Abraham was a knucklehead. Abraham expressed a lot of fear. But Sarah called him Lord and submitted to his decisions. And God protected her. God blessed her. God encouraged her. This is how God operates in the chain of command that he puts forth. So the Rechabites continued to obey a charge their clan was commanded by one man on one occasion long ago. One man on one occasion long ago. Back in 1776, Heinrich Bolander said, my descendants shall whatever. I wish he would have said, no descendant of mine will ever wear a necktie. Okay? <laughs> and then I could, you know, claim a clan imperative. One man on one occasion long ago. The clan itself actually is much older. I think uh, when you look in First Chronicles 2, 55, we see them included with the Kenites, and uh, they go back to Moses' time. They go back to the Exodus. And uh, they were scribes. They were blacksmiths, according to uh, uh, Masoretic traditions. And uh, interesting, we even have uh, artwork that depicts these guys, these nomads that would travel around with their bellows uh, that they needed for their portable uh, smithing responsibilities. Anyway, the clan itself is much older. However, at this stage of their clan history, Jonadab was the man. And Jonadab, in his day, laid down the parameters and said, Thou shalt not. And he pronounced the, the patriarchal parameters. And from that day on, six generations later, 240 years later, Rechabites in Jeremiah's day are still obedient to the patriarchal parameters. All right. And that's what makes the whole thing so amazing. And when this rebuke becomes so powerful, because the person of Jonadab, of course, is dead and buried and, and couldn't care less. Okay. Um, he, he doesn't know what's happening on the earth, right? He is, he is in Abraham's bosom. I assume he's a believer, maybe. Uh, he is dead. He's buried. He does not know if six generations later the clan is still following his precepts or not, or if the clan has been destroyed. You know, clans disappear. Warfare destroys clans, okay? Although a nomadic clan has a better chance of, of uh, staying out of trouble because they can move, all right? But a clan that's attached to real estate can get wiped out. We'll talk about that because at the end of this chapter, Rechabites are promised an eternal destiny. 
They are a clan with a promise. In addition to the 12 tribes that have tribal promises, the Rechabites are a clan with an eternal promise. All right. And again, what, what tribe are the Rechabite clan a part of? We don't know. And it may be that they're Kenites. They're not even Jewish. If the First Chronicles connection refers to the same Rechab. All right. Judah, on the other hand, <laughs> repeatedly disobeyed and ignored God's commands. God's commands, which, by the way, were given repeatedly, consistently, numerous times, through numerous prophets on many occasions up to the present time. He's still sending them prophets. They've got Jeremiah in their day and age, still giving the command of the Lord. And Judah continues to ignore. And you know, when you think about the numerous message versus a once and for all message, here's our contrast. This once and for all message. For the, for the um, Rechabites, the word of Jonadab was a once and for all message, and they've been living it out. For Israel, they don't get a once and for all message until when? Until Jesus Christ. All right? Because God spoke to the fathers in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. And the once and for all message of Jesus Christ, the capstone of all Old Testament revelation in Jesus Christ is the, uh, the greatest revelation manifest in one man for all time. So ignoring Moses is bad enough, but disregarding Jesus Christ is eternally destructive when God's revelation is manifest in one man for all time. Oh, there's some themes here that I wish we could develop out. I'd, I'd take six weeks just with this one. <laughs> okay? And spell it out and show the, uh, the sequence of progressive revelation from prophet to prophet to prophet, all of which culminating in Jesus Christ and in His first advent incarnation. The, the message of Jesus Christ. All of this was coming by prophecy, by the way. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, After me is coming a prophet like unto me. Right? After Moses, a prophet like unto Moses. And it, you can disregard Moses, which has a death penalty. But if you disobey this prophet, it's forever. If you reject the gospel, what's the, what's the consequences of rejecting Christ? See. And so we have... Uh, these aspects here as well. Let me grab some of these. Deuteronomy 18. It's fulfilled in Jesus, by the way. It's not fulfilled in Muhammad. <laughs> okay. uh, the Quran tries to say, yeah, yeah, Muhammad's the guy. Moses says there was a prophet coming after him. And they try to say it's Muhammad. Well, it's not. It's Jesus. And the New Testament tells us it's Jesus. Um, Deuteronomy 18, I will raise, the Lord said to me, they've spoken well, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Remember, Jesus comes and he delivers the message of the father. And if you reject that message, what's the consequence? All right, John 5, verses 45 through 47. Here's Jesus in the fulfillment of this. John chapter 5, 
This was brought up in the uh, pre-trib conference this week. One of the keynote speakers uh, addressed this. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. Jesus is rebuking some Pharisees here in this chapter. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And we have a transition here from the Moses revelation to the living revelation of the Word of God in terms of Jesus Christ. And then Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, I quoted it a little bit ago. God, long ago, spoke to the prophets and many portions, the fathers in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, through whom also He made the world. All right, back to the Rechabites. So, um, the word of the Lord came to me saying, will you not receive instruction? Okay. Um, verse 14. We didn't read these yet, did we? 14 through? No, we didn't. So the words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded the sons not to drink wine, they're observed, so they do not drink wine to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not listened to me. Also I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them again and again, saying, Turn now, every man from his evil way, amend your deeds, do not go after other gods to worship them. Then you would dwell in the land which I have given to you and to your forefathers, but you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. Indeed, the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have observed the command of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not listened to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I have uh, called them, but they did not answer. And so that's the contrast. And this is why they're being rebuked. Now here's the promise. Then Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab, your father, kept all his commands and done according to all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me always, forever. Unto the ages there will always be a descendant of Jonadab standing before the Lord. This is a blessing to the clan that, uh, that Yahweh pronounces here in this, in this uh, message. The house of Jonadab, son of Rechab, is given in eternal promise. This is so extraordinary. I mean, who does Yahweh speak to personally? Beyond, the, beyond of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the tribes, he does call out the house of David as the, as the kingly house. All right? Beyond that, I think Zadok is a priest that gets spotlighted and given, a, given an eternal inheritance that's within the Levitical priesthood. And here, the house of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which I think was a Gentile house. A Gentile house being given a place in the Lord's presence. So, what does this mean? To stand before me you shall not lack a man to stand before me. Is that significant? I think so. Some people minimize what it means, but I think it's significant. 
And notice what, what launched all this. It's in response to temporal life obedience. It's in response to temporal life obedience. You say, well, what's the value in that? There's a lot of value in that. If it has the foundation in spiritual life obedience, if you're honoring your father and mother, the first commandment with a promise, God rewards this. Temporal life obedience to the patriarchal parameters led God to God's blessing in spiritual life eternal service. You know, in some respects, this is true in the Old Testament, true in the New Testament. If you are faithful in earthly things, if you're a manager of your household with your wife, with your children, if they're believers, if they're in the Word of God, what's the, what's the text say there? I'm talking about 1 Timothy 3 now. These are qualifications for pastors and for deacons. These are the parameters, and they're temporal life parameters. But as temporal life issues, they become indicators for a spiritual life service. And so here they are, honoring their forefather, and God's going to bless them with spiritual life, eternal service. Standing before me is an expression for priestly or prophetic ministry in the personal presence of the Lord. Standing before me. It shows proximity. It shows intimacy, which was a pretty rare thing in the Old Testament. When Israel appeared before the Lord, you know what that meant? That meant they were at the base of the mountain and afraid to touch it. And only Moses could go up to the top of the mountain. But Israel was standing before me, it says in Exodus. Or the priest that goes into the Holy of Holies is standing before me. Or the angel Gabriel who says, I stand in the presence of God. This is a specific reward and um, we're going to run out of time, but here we have it. Um, it's been previously used in Jeremiah 7. It's been previously used in Jeremiah 15. We've had it twice already in this book study. Uh, back in chapter 7 and, and uh, verse 10. Standing before me. You know, if, if God is omnipresent, so he's everywhere, what does it mean when we say we're standing before him? <laughs> right? I mean, because he's omnipresent, so wherever I stand, am I not standing before him? You know? I was in the shower this morning. God was in the shower this morning. Was I... So, how does this work then? And you understand, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, yes, he is everywhere. However, he is certain places in a very particular way. He is at certain places at certain times in a certain way. The Shekinah glory was not omnipresent. The Shekinah glory was monopresent in the Holy of Holies. Uh, when when uh, Moses approached the burning bush, God was monopresent in a very special way right there. God is monopresent inside you. The Holy Spirit indwells each one of us, right? And so there are realities to God's omnipresence that are particular and special in special places and special ways. And this includes standing before the Lord. So Jeremiah 7 and verse 10, Come and stand before me in this house. See, and this is part of a rebuke here, you might recall. Are, are you going to steal, murder, or commit adultery, swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, walk after other gods that you have not known, then come and stand before me in this house? You're doing all that pagan stuff and the honky-tonks on Saturday, then you come into my church on Sunday morning? Okay, this house, which is called by my name, and you say, we are delivered, that you may do all this, these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? 
Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. So he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, he sees everything. But in these places, he really sees it, okay? He sees it quickly, he sees it immediately. You have his personal attention. You are face-to-face with the Lord at that point. And he's dealing with you. And this is going to be an eternal blessing for the house of Jonadab. Other applications, I'm just out of time. Uh, Jeremiah 15, 19, Deuteronomy 4, 10 and 10, 8. 1 Kings 10, 8, another illustration there. Um, the, the Queen of Sheba thought it was so amazing that Solomon in all of his wisdom had these servants. These servants were privileged to stand in the presence of Solomon and just learn his wisdom every day. She, she was amazed. That, you know, she's got to pack up and go back to Sheba, but these guys get, get to stay here every day in the presence of Solomon and all his wisdom. That's what it means to stand in the face of, to stand before me. 1 Kings 17, 1, 1 Kings 18, 15, examples there of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and then 2 Kings three fourteen. But I'm out of time. There are some later traditions after the Old Testament, some Mishnah traditions indicating that the Rechabites had a fixed day in the year for bringing wood for the altar of the temple. It became an intertestamental tradition that even in the time of Christ, there were seven times, I think it's seven times a year, nine, maybe nine times a year, that uh, clans were responsible for bringing wood into the, uh, into the temple. And um, if my clicker is going to work here, Mishnah. The time of the wood offering of priests and people comes on nine occasions in the year. And so uh, there's the first of Nisan, the 20th of Tammuz, the 5th of Ab, the 7th of that month, that's the one, the 7th of Ab, okay, summertime, July time frame, the 5th of Ab, I'm sorry, the 7th of that month is the offering of the family of Yonadab ben Rakab. This is their month. This clan gets to bring the wood. The 10th of the month, the 15th of that month, uh, with them, the offering of priests, Levites, and whoever is an error as to his tribe. And the families of Ganbi, Eli, the pestle smugglers, and fig pressers. The 20th of that same month, on the 20th of Elul, on the 1st of Tibet. Oh, you got to love the 1st of Tibet. On the 1st of Tibet. On the 1st of Tibet, Hanukkah. There was no delegation. Anyway, these are, these are the traditions in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this clan is still being mentioned as operating during the, the times of, that Christ walked the earth. All right. Well, it is our tradition, church tradition, to have communion on the second Sunday of the month. So uh, we need to get to that at this time. Let me close in prayer, and then we can proceed. Father, I thank you for this study, and I thank you for the blessings of being able to uh, orient to these things, especially uh, clans and tribes and families that are so alien to our modern world and our way of operating. And Father, uh, I ask for guidance as we consider these things and see what our applications are, Father. What are our family traditions, and what uh, what does it mean to be obedient, to uh, uh, to honor our father and our mother? that it may go well with us, Father. And uh, teach us what these things are about. Help us to make the appropriate applications, all consistent in temporal life with spiritual life. 
Thank you for giving us this glimpse into the family life and, and uh, the personal nature of this and in your people, Father, in the Old Testament times. So uh, open our eyes as well to what's expected of us today in our day and age. Uh, what do we do, Father, as we honor our father and mother? And so uh, open our eyes to these realities as well. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.